Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the new retail paradigm with my friend, Ali Raza. How's it going, Ali? Hi, Joe. Good to see you again. Great, great. Ali, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're at. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, my name is Ali Raza. I'm the founder and CEO of Throughput. At Throughput, we help companies put material flow on autopilot, uh, starting from, of course, retail all the way to the raw materials. Uh, we're based out of Silicon Valley. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about some interesting topics around how retail disruption has been affecting the supply chain. Uh, I guess in right, terms of right. the background on my side, I could probably add to that. Uh, why we're talking today, of course, is uh, I have a background in both chemical engineering and process simulations. And I uh, worked as an operator all the way to a geomarket manager for war zone logistics and, and manufacturing for an oil food services company. So I'll turn it over to Joe. Yeah. <laughs> so Ali, I know when we talked last time, you talked a lot about uh, your experience uh, in the oil fields <laughs> and uh, you uh, you started to realize that the real challenge in the cost wasn't necessarily people. It was it was throughput. So please give us and not your company. I know your company's name throughput, but give us a definition of what throughput is. I think it's a very difficult topic for some people to grasp. Not you, <laughs> but, but a lot of people struggle with that topic. Yeah, you know, it was sort of beaten into me for, for over five years of chemical engineering, right? So uh, we ultimately started understanding processes and throughput. Um, I guess, you know, the challenges you correctly mentioned, and we're seeing this more and more in the world, is uh, when demand is very unpredictable and very uncertain and, uh, you know, you can't make sales because of whatever's happening in your industry. The question becomes, well, we still have a bottom line to deliver. So how do we do that? Right. Um, the fastest trigger that most short term and short sighted managers pull is they go after the compensation lines. Right. And say, OK, well, we lay off a few people. We can hire them back. We'll be safe for the next quarter or so. Uh, what I discovered was that there was more money tied in logistics inefficiencies and how we were managing warehousing and where how we were delivering product right to the end customer than all the other stuff. And using historical data, we could actually effectively plan out strategies, uh, even in what you will go into in very volatile, uncertain uh, environments where you have things from rockets being launched, you're having... Yes, yeah. indeed. So we, we, when we were prepping, we talked about this whole idea of VUCA, and it's come up a lot lately, and I think it's a great term for these days. But it's not just COVID. Volatile, <laughs> uncertain, ambiguous, and or complex and ambiguous. And that is what we've been dealing with. And even without COVID, we're still there. I mean, we're getting out of COVID now. We have some startup issues that are causing even more challenges. But we are never leaving this VUCA environment when it comes to retail. <laughs> Yeah, and the systems are pretty much the same. Uh, last year, we wrote an article right around when things shut down about how things would be when things would open up. And I think we're pretty accurate in terms of the stockpiling we're seeing, the disruptions, uh, still st stuff being out of stock at the retail side. So nothing really changes, right, uh, until you make systematic changes. And uh, market demand is always influenced by all sorts of factors, right, that are predictable right. and unpredictable at the same time. 
Yep. So before we get into the topic today, so what do you mean? What, what is throughput? Not your company. What is the term throughput? Yeah, throughput should be looked at in terms of speed, right? Uh, in terms of what comes in and what goes out and uh, how it's moving through a distribution center or how it's moving to a retail store. Uh, that's how we define throughput. Naturally, there's other definitions that have come from the theory of constraints community that Eliyahu Goldratt founded uh, many years ago, uh, pretty much focused on bottlenecks and managing it. And I think it's more relevant today with omnichannel where, you know, there's all sorts of saturation points and bottlenecks that we're creating on our side because how we're moving material, especially in a post-COVID world. So if I'm, if I'm a retailer uh, and throughput means to me is how fast stuff is getting out, is how, how fast I'm selling stuff, right? Inventory so trend. if I look at a product, yeah, if I, so if I look at a product, I say, I want to sell, I, I want to sell, uh, as much bread as I can, right? And I, I and I want to I want to manage the inventory in a way that um, <laughs> that allows me to make maximum sales without uh, incurring extra costs because it was there too long and maybe went bad or uh, cost me too much uh, storage time, right? Absolutely. Uh, there's a so, great book that I haven't written, but it's called Throughput Economics, which talks about the bakery example of how it's more important to turn over faster, right? And uh, then it is to manage costs and all the other things. So that's how retailers should be thinking, right? Which is how do I turn over a product faster? Right. So um, before we get into the topic today, uh, you've told us what throughput is. Um, what what hole in the market did you see when you started your company, Throughput AI? Or do you call it th Throughput AI or do you just call it Throughput? Um, either way, we do have an AI element right now that helps customers predict demand and reorient their supply chain all the way from retail to their raw materials. Uh, the challenge I saw, of course, was that, you know, demand forecasts are never accurate. As you clearly mentioned, uh, there's always a new problem, new disruption in uh, global supply chains across industries. And the way operations deals with it uh, today and before and tomorrow, right, is we buffer against the forecast, right? So we uh, purposely uh, request excess capacity, we purposely stockpile stuff uh, because we uh, trust our judgment and the, you know, the 10,000 hours that we've put into operations to yeah. fill it uh, more than we do any sort of data systems, right? Data allows us to build better models, right? To understand how customer segmentation, product segmentation act. But ultimately, that's the problem that I saw, which is there's just still a disconnect between sales and operations planning. And there's a better way to use data to make some informed decisions around when we should be buying stuff, where we should be stocking stuff and what will always sell and how much variance do I have to plan for uh, in the best case and the worst case scenario. So that pretty much was the fundamentals of what was throughput and it's scaled up to what it is today. Right. So when I still worked in automotive, I did a lot of lean and we, we tried to incorporate theory of constraints and, um, the challenge we always had was you had to kind of bring in this brain trust and trying to understand the demand, which always seemed to move around inappropriately. <laughs> and then the capacity was always moving, you know, uh, and you're never talking about single product line. So if it's, if it's one, if I'm just making one sort of apple pie, life is good as soon, but as soon as you say add cherry pies and add uh, chocolate pies, or whatever else, that's where the world gets very confusing. Let's face it. We live in that confusing world. Nobody says, hey, we sell one car <laughs> or nobody says we sell one pie. We tend to sell a lot and then making it even worse these days. Now, I mean, more options for consumers, but more difficult for us 
in the retail e-commerce and the and the people who support them is I want my different pies, I want them in different locations, and I want them through different channels. And it's it's a it's a three-dimensional chess game all the time. And what we noticed that when I'm still in automotive is we never seem to be able to get all the data in one place to be able to kind of manage that. And then when we did, it seemed like it took not just one individual to say, I'll just enter this information in. It seemed as if we had to get five, eight, 10 people involved who all really seem to know a lot to smooth that out. It, it was very difficult. And what I like about what you guys are doing is you're saying, don't do that. Let the, let the machine do it. That's what throughput AI's machine does, right? That's what the black box that you sell does, right? Yeah. And what we've learned to do as well, Joe, is to linearize the problem, right? Like you correctly mentioned, uh, the demand is changing, the capacity is changing, the lead times are changing and uh, connecting all the data sets is one part of the step, right? But ultimately, if you look at it, uh, and most systems today are just checking the the in and the out. They're not really looking at how the material is changing in the manufacturing process or um, are they're spoiling in, at the retail center or essentially how much inventory is being built up and and, 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 and reduced, right, in, in terms of drawdown. So what we uh, essentially do is we, we work with customers to say, look, you don't have to digitize everything. There's existing data on either point. Somewhere in the middle is a bottleneck. It could be on your omni-channel side. It could be on your manufacturing side. And just picking an upstream point and a downstream point and something in the middle is a good start, right? Versus connecting all the data. And I think more retailers can take that approach to be more proactive in terms of on-time info and some of the other metrics that they track today. Right. Right. So these are the, these are the problems we're dealing with. Let's talk about the first. So first up, we got the VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. That's, so that's the, that's the, that's all the, the noise in the system, right? We, we don't really know what to do all the time. And, and it's changing. And then we have, to your point, omni-channel. We're not only just, we at one time said, I'm selling this product at a retailer and I have 500 locations. That's a challenge, right? Um, but now I'm saying, not only do I have my 500 retail locations, I'm also selling this in, through an e-commerce, right? So, so I have that challenge. And then you brought up OTIF. So when we talk about on time and in full, oh, that's what OTIF means on time and in full. The challenge is there is number one, if I'm not on time and in full, that retailer is going to find me, right? So this is more of the supplier problem. Um, if I don't get it there on time, um, I'm going to have lost sales. That's bad. I, I pay a fine. I lost sales. Next, I have my customers potentially sampling other my competition stuff. That's bad. And then last but not least, we're hearing more and more that big retailers are eliminating suppliers based on, on time and in full because what they realized during the pandemic is if I have 27 types of peanut butter, I sell fewer units than if I have six types of peanut butter. So we're seeing less, we see a skew reduction, which is confusing again, more VUCA. So these are the challenges. And again, you said it, demand's changing, different places, different channels, capacity's changing, especially during our COVID times, and lead times are changing. 
So first off, talk about how we deal with this mess as the retailer. Then I want to talk about what the CPGs do. Yeah, yeah it's very challenging, right? From a retail perspective, um, typically the way it's done is previously it was all about, hey, we need we need this, make it happen, right? And what the chip shortage and some of the other CPGs have proven is just if you can't make enough computer chips or toilet paper or whatever, you're not going to get it from from that perspective, right? And so the challenge, of course, is understanding customer demand and uh, predicting what happens in an environment which is a catastrophe versus regular business operations, right? What's nicer is there's enough historical data that sits in the sales systems that you can leverage to make some sense of the data, right? It's not going to give you a 100% picture. No, no data model does, but it can help you prepare for stuff that is consistently delivered on time in full and will sell regardless, where you have good suppliers that will deliver in any environment uh, from that perspective. And that essentially right. is how we, uh, in an environment like COVID, you can actually use that data to say, you know what, we're going to commit to making the, these products, right? We're going to reduce that product mix down because we know we can get this. And this ultimately eliminates a lot of uncertainty, but it also creates a lot more buffer on the logistics side and more capacity, right? virtual capacity, because now right. um, you can attempt and risk run, run, run the risk of running products that are not going to be on time in full. And so this is one of the strategies that retailers, right. I think, are looking more into, right? They uh, especially if you're working with contract manufacturers or CPGs, right? Um, the challenge is not if OTIF is your key metric. It's about getting stuff on time in full, right? And there's enough historical data today that tells you which 3PL, which solution type is actually delivered to you on time in full consistently versus those that pretty much fluctuate all over the place and create all sorts of problems in the omni-channel network. Right. So, so that's the scenario planning. So use to your point, I have, I'm a retailer, I'm a large retailer. I have historical store sales. I know what I can sell. I know what products sell. And, and I think we all know that if you're managing retail location, some of that's anecdotal. You know, just that we always sell this. We always know we're going to sell certain products, right? Um, you see it, the shelf is empty all the time. So, so we know it's selling it. Um, but what you're saying is take that information. And start some scenario planning, some digital, we'll call it digital twin. So I have the, my, I have my retail location that I have its digital twin. And then when I hit an event like COVID, one, even without COVID, I'm always doing scenario planning and saying, traditionally in July, I sell these products, but this is, this is the, where we're leaving COVID. I'm going to see something different. I'm going to adjust up and I'm going to adjust down. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a lot of this, these learnings, right? Um, I know, as you know, I was in oil field for a bit, but a lot of these learnings come from the military environment, right? So if you want to learn how to run an effective supply chain, it's with the military guys, right? And so a lot of those concepts can be moved over uh, to deal with this VUCA situation, but you're absolutely right. Um, you have the sales data, right? Which ultimately tells you what you can sell, uh, sell, but uh, what you need to tie it back to is your historical on time and full data and your historical on shelf availability, right? Because that really puts right, the. Right, because if I can't get it, there's no sense time on selling it. <laughs> right. So that's pretty much your base case, right? That's your foundation saying that this is my system that works and everything else is variance, right? And so that's sort of the key now, right? Which is many people are just looking at, oh, sales is through the roof. Uh, I think I at, at, a, at, a Mich at a Michigan wedding, I met someone who said that uh, 
you know, last year they were making paper cards, uh, card, you know, like cardboard boxes. And they thought that they got an order and they thought there was an extra zero on it. So they rejected it and sent it back. And the, the retailer said, nope, there is an extra zero. Start making boxes, right? <laughs> and so that's what you can essentially uh, plan for, which is saying, okay, even though there's, uh, they need 10x what they typically need, we're not going to make it, right? Even if we're at 24 hours, seven days a week production. Right. So we're still talking about this retailer. So they can do this. They have this historical data. They can they can use that the store sales, and then they have to look. They have to also look at the capacity, what they can actually get. So yes. that's where the on time and in full. If I look and say I can't trust a certain segment of my my suppliers right now to provide on time and in full. So no sense doing scenario. So part of that scenario planning is saying I can't sell toilet paper that I don't receive. <laughs> The really Absolutely. nice two ply toilet paper in the eighteen pack. <laughs> I don't get that right now. So, well, this was our challenge with vaccines in in December, right? Which is uh, some demand scenario planner was saying that we're going to have eighteen million vaccines, and if you went back to Pfizer and Moderna, you're not going to get more than two million vaccines, right? And uh, no matter what you promise, right? Yeah, yeah. So then uh, that's the same case in retail, right? So you have to understand what your system capacity is, right? Um, sales will sell whatever, right? That's how sales operates. It's like they're optimistic people. Yeah. But uh, being able to take the sales yeah, data, this guy look at the on-time right. info and on-shelf availability <laughs> and build that entire model from a retail to distribution pr- perspective is a much more effective strategy, right? In terms of what you can deliver from your capacity perspective and then looking at your products that are selling and making margin or capturing market share for you is that piece of the equation that we actually deliver to the customer saying, look, uh, you got to focus on the key things that you can cut, right? And that's another thing you in a, in a chaotic environment, you're not going to fundamentally change how you make things, right? You're going to take, you're going to make basic, st- you're going to take basic decisions, right? Cutting more, ordering more, stocking more, that's stuff that you can control, but, Fundamentally going and changing the way how you make ventilators is a big ask, right? Um, because it just can't be done overnight because it requires a lot of coordination. Right. You know, so when we were prepping, you talked a little bit about um, getting the, getting the stuff to the shelves is great, but not everything, not everything is profitable for the retailer. So, um, so they're buying things, putting it on the shelf moving it around and then at some point selling it only to lose money. So how, uh, first off, how does that happen? And secondly, how, how, what can you do about it? There's a variety of factors, right? So uh, the demand is always changing, right? Uh, some things become super hot and, you know, the price surges 10 X, 15 X on certain things, right? Um, think of chicken, how chicken's gone more expensive over, over the last few, uh, few months. Right. And, and uh, so the, the challenge is basically, um, when the demand changes, right, and you pretty much and you're moving stuff that doesn't sell, someone's absorbing the cost. Unfortunately, in the supply chain, everyone is absorbing the cost. And if you're, say, the dollar store, right, um, you're in a situation where you can't change the price. So your entire supply chain is suffering because of how uh, costs have been shifted, right? So there's all sorts of stuff happening uh, in, in the ecosystem uh, it's a very complex problem to describe, but I don't have all the answers in terms of what's happening. But you could tell. So if you, somebody said, um, 
Ali, come into my store and do an analysis and tell me where I'm making money or where I'm not based on all my costs. And you said there's a there's a good percentage of stuff that's on shelves that doesn't make money or makes money. Uh, maybe it made money at Christmas time, but as you said, maybe doesn't sell anything in January, February, March. Now that would be true of holiday decorations or stuff or holiday food, but that's the kind of thing we need to know because again, these stores have enormous footprints and it's a it's a thin margin business. It would be nice if I could say. I can I can be in a smaller store location and have fewer shelves, but be just as just make much just as much money because I don't have unprofitable stuff on my shelves. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we've gone into uh, it, uh, uh, even a it's a, it's a completely different level that we've gone into is based off of the historical data. We can tell you what's not going to make money before you even order it. So there's just there's enough data today that before you even put in the purchase that's order, what, that's when I need to know it. Don't yeah. tell me after it's on my shelf that I don't need it. So we've we run into the situation, and it's as I mentioned to you during the prep. It just you can see just the red in the. Um, we have a visualization that shows you red versus green, which is green is good on time info, and red is it's never going to make it. There's just so much product for the historical data, just because of the network is designed and how much it's costing along the line uh, to the retail, which pretty much disqualifies it from ever making it. I remember we did a we did some work with a major vitamin company back uh, several years ago. And what we discovered was that, um, you know, the retailers had this uh, need to have, I think you would, you still needed to have a 90% shelf life by the time it got there. Right. And, or, or something like 40, 50% shelf, shelf life and 90% of the products that were showing up on shelf didn't have it. Right. So that's all historical data that if someone had actually looked and said, Hey, this is never going to work. That was millions of dollars of product that was never going to sell to begin with. So what I'm saying is that there's enough data today that you don't actually look, have to look at the purchase level, right? Uh, sorry, the POS level of what's going on in the stores. You can look at the purchasing behavior and see that some products based off of changing demand, will never going to, they're never going to sell anymore, right? Until there's a change in marketing conditions right. or because of how logistics is set up or the way you're going into the omni-channel, you're pretty much losing money. And you don't even realize it until it gets to the store. Right. And, you know, perhaps the I, I had somebody else, the people from Lineage Logistics, they do a lot of cold chain. They're on yep. my podcast and they t- were talking about sustainability. And one of the things that the, they said the most wasteful thing we do is have a product, I'll say, let's just say bread, go yep. all the way through this enormous supply chain and then throw it out. Um, and that, that when you think about it, not only so if I'm throwing it out, I'm I'm impacting the environment from a sustainability, but also you said potentially there's somebody within driving distance who maybe a food pantry that could use that. So it would be real valuable to say, first off, let's not make it if we can avoid it. But if we are going to make it, let's understand if it's going to sell on a timely basis. And if not, let's get it to the food bank. Yeah. Um, and again, the idea that the most wasteful the most wasteful thing you can do on a supply chain is create something and then throw it out. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things people don't realize from a circular economy perspective, right, with sustainability is even if you're turning mushrooms into T-shirts, right, if it's not selling or if you're transferring it on a logistics 18-wheeler that's pushing out emissions, technically it's not sustainable and uh, from an overall perspective, right? So there's always emissions in the supply chain, but you're absolutely right. Um, If you can figure out what's selling, then you should pretty much make that, right? Versus 
pushing now pushing new product is completely different. That's uh, like, hey, we want to try a new product. But even so, you should free up enough capacity at your warehouses, at your logistics centers, at your retail stores to test it, right? Uh, then rather than arbitrarily scaling it up, uh, think, uh, you know, oatmeal lattes at Starbucks or whatever it is. Yeah. And so one of the other things we talked about when we were prepping, and again, when I'm prepping is more you educating me on these things. But when we talk about um, Costco, uh, Trader Joe's, Aldi, Lidl, we have a lot of these chains that are uh, retail chains that have fewer SKUs. But I think one of the things that they've recognized, and oh, by the way, Amazon's opening stores. I don't, I've never been to one. They don't have them by me, but I think the Amazon stores will have very few SKUs, but it's the SKUs they know that will sell. And so I think we're seeing some stores say, we are going to greatly reduce the SKU count and we're going to sell everything that we, that we make. Everything that hits my shelf, I know sells. And that would, so if I knew that, um, I could, I could make a smaller store, right? Correct. Um, you, if you can find, (laughs) (laughs) well, you can have, um, if you have higher turnover, right, you don't need to be storing as much because the shelf space is always being reutilized much faster, right? Rather than it's sitting, stockpiling stuff, ending up on the, on the floors, not selling. And so if you have fast moving goods, uh, you will be able to use uh, smaller and smaller locations to sell what actually sells and ultimately move the, the long tail into the distribution centers where if there is demand for some, a specialty product, it would be ah, I like it. Yeah. Right. So, so the, the retail location manages the stuff that I know moves fast. Right. So that, and then to your point, you say, Hey, I want this um, spice. And they say that spice we will deliver to your house tomorrow or later today. So it's it's interesting to me when you start to think about this very uh, low margin business, all, all businesses struggle for margin. We have very big spaces that we, we, we rent and buy for these locations. And what you're saying is there's a lot of stuff on shelves that aren't um, necessarily making them the money they think it's making them. It's that landed and then cost of the cost from the from that entire supply chain to the time it gets to the consumer is more than they think it is yeah, absolutely and I'm, what i'm seeing is so, well go ahead please well i was just going to say so how do you fix that <laughs> give us that one more time i know you said it already yep so uh on the retail side you ideally want stuff that is clearing off the shelves faster right because it also helps with cash flow generation right in low margin businesses if you have faster inventory turns you're going to generate more cash right i think amazon figured this out many years ago uh but now they're getting to the retail stores and i think the play there is to pretty much prove it at the at the last mile now right or at the consumer level and then moving stuff back into distribution centers that doesn't sell now what i'm also seeing in the international foods goods market right to so think of stuff that comes from India or the Middle East. I mean, these are spices, right, that are not typically fast-moving goods. Um, I'm seeing that there are new business models where instead of having these retail stores that are selling just, say, Japanese products or Chinese goods, they're going at the distribution model saying, hey, we can centralize this, and we have a very niche market of people who will pay for this sort of, I don't know, chicken tikka masala or something, and um, and that is a more effective margin business than actually having retail stores that are selling it, right? So um, it makes sense that you want faster moving goods on the shelves that are moving, right? Uh, milk, cookies, bread, right? And what doesn't sell should be shifted right. a little bit back, yeah. Unless it's new product uh, so, introduction, right? 
So, so the, the retailers you work with, they, you basically have a digital twin and they're able to kind of use your system in a way that tells them, hey, order less of this and more of this and, get, and don't ever order this again. <laughs> yeah. And furthermore, don't get more trucks because uh, this is kind of a huge uh, paradigm shift, which is what ends up happening is people, when they see a surge in demand and they need to move more stuff, um, they end up ordering more trucks. Right, saying we need more capacity for trucks, manufacturing, retail, everything. And if you go downstream all the way to the retail shop and say, guys, what are we actually selling? And you work backwards. Not only do you free up tons of cash, tons of capacity, but you ultimately don't need as much in freight. And this is this can be huge right now where, you know, spot buying uh, containers is very, very expensive. Right. And our pitch is if you don't move, if you're moving stuff that doesn't sell, what's the point? Right. Figure out what's actually selling and then move that. And that pretty much solves the entire freight problem, cost problem, all that. Now, there's a company who figured this out many years ago in manufacturing. They tried to move towards single piece flow and they're closest to it, which is Toyota, right? Um, It's the same concept of, you know, reducing the product mix that you talked about, linearizing the supply chain as much as you can, which will increase the throughput and the speed of delivery and improve the on-time info. Yep. And what's cool about... Yeah, getting back to the, the Toyota model, one of the things that they they are very predictable on their production, and they say we're going to sell every last vehicle, and they don't they don't they don't have to have tons of options. They just say, look, we're going to sell every. We know it. What's yeah. interesting is the big three, uh, the domestic, always had this a little different mindset, which was we'll add a tons of options, and we'll be able to. Um, what if you if you want it, we'll get it for you, right? We'll build that specialty vehicle. And it was good from a consumer perspective, but it was very difficult to manage from a throughput perspective. And and I think you'll see more and more companies adapting the Toyota product. Well, anybody in manufacturing has adopted the Toyota production system or TOC, but that, that's another rat hole another day. So yep. so what you're able to do with these companies, scenario planning, you've got historical data. I'm going to have this digital twin. I'm going to do all this different scenario planning with the goal of maybe I have a goal of I'm going to, you know, increase pro- uh, profitability, uh, get rid of get rid of things that are slow moving or not selling at all and, you know, run a good business. So let's talk about the CPGs, the consumer packaged goods companies, the big companies that sell to um, the retailers. They have another, they have the same, they have a whole nother list of challenges. So they have this whole supply chain that they have to work with. So they have to, you know, give, give their uh, demands, right? And then they are being judged by on time and in full. So, and they're again, they're battling the same VUCA environment that the retailer is. They have a supply chain that is potentially, um, well, during COVID decimated. And they're being fined if they're not on time and in full to the retailer. They potentially lose sales if they don't get their product to the shelves. Uh, customers start sampling their competition. Very bad. And then ultimately, the retailers might say, you know what, Ali, Joe, we don't like you anymore because you don't meet my on time and in full. We're no longer working with you. So they have enormous problems. What can you do for them? <laughs> Yeah, one of the challenges with the big CPG companies, right, and we sit on an enormous amount of data for some of the largest companies in the world, right, is they're just not nimble in their decision making, right? 
So for them, it's actually easier to make more and just push more um, and just hope for the best, right? Which I'm not saying is their strategy, but um, it just, they, the business operates on a, and this is, this is kind of the disconnect with the planning systems and the execution, right? Execution happens on a daily, even hourly basis, right? The planning systems are trying to overcorrect for the next three to six months. And so on the CPG side, uh, the value prop is, again, freeing up capacity, right? Which is um, you need to have enough buffer capacity on the manufacturing side and distribution side to deal with the variance, right? Saying, uh, and you need to also focus on products. First of all, you can't, you can't supply everything, right? That's one of the big takeaways, right? You have to figure out which products you can get on time in full. You have good distribution and performance with and low reject rates with uh, to continue uh, supplying that product, right? Um, with CPGs, what we help them understand is the demand side on of the retail side, which we, they already sort of have, right? Because they get purchase orders from retail. So it is a reflection, though a delayed reflection of what's going on from the retail perspective, right? On an ongoing basis, even if they can't get access, access to the data from the supermarkets, right? Um, but there's enough historical data to pretty much figure out the products that are actually selling, figuring out where those products need to be at what time of the year, and ultimately sends signals back to their own suppliers saying that with, with, with the lead times we've seen historically, this is when we need it and this is when we need it uh, and where we need it, right? And essentially, we uh, help fill that gap in the middle where we're freeing up capacity, we're making sure the product mix is being cleaned up so they can still perform in these environments, right? So on time in full is always going to be a challenge. We haven't even gone into the point where it's just not enough to just deliver stuff on time. It has to be acceptable quality, right? There's, uh, I'll go into this maybe in a, a different uh, time, but there's literally furniture manufacturers that I, I, I was speaking to this week where, you know, it, it didn't really matter that it was on time in full if every every fifth or fifth, sixth pallet was being rejected by the customer, right? So that's the other part of the, the supply chain, which is on time in full right. is defined differently by different companies. And I learned this actually last week, which is for some, it's just enough to get it to the, to the shelf, right? But if you actually are vertically integrated and you own everything, you want it to be on time, you want it to be in full, you want it to be profitable, you want it to have 100% quality, it needs to have 100% customer service satisfaction. And that metric is very hard to hit, right? And that creates an enormous amount of complexity. But the companies that focus on that ultimately start capturing the market. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, years ago, when I was still a logistics company, uh, we started measuring uh, for, for uh, an automotive uh, OEM what that these guys that their suppliers were shipping on time and then uh, and then after a while I was like yeah they are all you know so we're picking so I said yeah this is the percent that we picked up on time um well guess what they were sending they were sending pallets that were 80% 90% so they so they <laughs> so to your point it's not enough to say, was it on time? It's on time, but I got 90 out of 100 parts. So so then we quickly picked up on that. And, and one of the things that I used to go crazy about is when I found uh, suppliers would send multiple multiple shipments. And that meant that they couldn't send it all at once. So they just sent multiple shipments. And it was on on the expense of my customer. And I was like, no, you can't do that. You're going to pay for that second one that you didn't, it should have been included with the first. But so, but getting back to it, um, if I'm that CPG, I have the demand that's coming from the retailer. 
I, I'm able to provide that demand to my suppliers. But there's still that piece that not everything I'm selling is necessarily profitable. I need again that I need that I need that digital twin. I need that scenario planning where somebody says, "Hey, stop selling uh, these low skew count things that you're not making any money on, or stop selling this product in." January because you don't sell any they they go to they go and they come back or they go and they get thrown out and you don't get paid full price yeah, it's it's wishful thing right I, I think the and I keep going back to Wall Street but um, you know there's there before quantitative trading started happening there's a lot of bias in terms of what used to get bought and what used to get sold right and then ultimately when the computers took over they pretty much eliminated all the human bias right saying that remove the optimist right. optimism is great right but some some things are just not possible in a system, right? Uh, if your system can't do it, you can't be an optimist that it's going to 3x the output, right? It just doesn't come out of thin air. And so uh, there's the digital twin is an excellent use of understanding a visual model, right? Seeing it from an end-to-end perspective, which humans typically don't have that uh, perspective, right? And especially people who are very siloed in terms of doing certain jobs. I'll give you an example. When I was an operator, right? Um, what I looked at pretty much was, am I getting my chemicals on time, right? Um, are the, is the equipment working on time? Are 18 wheelers showing up? That was my, that was my world, right? That I didn't care about what was going on at Global. I didn't care about the PL sheet, right? My job was make sure nobody finds out that we're down, we're down here and the engineer in charge, the supervisor in charge is Ali, right? Now, when you go and, but when I got elevated to a global perspective and I started seeing these SAP systems in terms of where product is starting in Houston and ending up in say Yemen, right? Um, this is where uh, you start getting that perspective of, hey, like there's a lot of inefficiencies at this level. Forget about what's happening at the bottom level where we're, it's just compounding to the top. So digital twin is a great use case of understanding and just visualizing what's going on from a flow perspective and where the waste is in the supply chain all the way to the retail. I equate it very similar to like a car engine, right? A car engine, when the petrol goes in, it's not using more than 30 to 40% of the energy is mechanical. A lot of it's getting being dissipated heat and friction and all that. The global supply chain is pretty much the same thing, right? Um, and so your job is to figure out either how to reduce the losses, right, towards getting more mechanical energy and useful usefulness, or I won't get into this, but going minimizing the product mix and making something that's a little bit more sustainable, which is what the electric companies are doing now, right? Electric car companies where they're going from, you know, all these thousands of components to just a few hundred components uh, in, in in a company. So um, it's interesting what's happening from that perspective. Yeah. And and you, you started to touch on AI. And I think you guys are using AI to do this scenario planning and basically be able to take take uh, capacity and take demand and um, align it, correct? Correct. And furthermore, what we've so added... So I can get maximum throughput. Yeah. And what we've all actually added uh, since we last spoke is what's also important is to understand when there is price volatility and a surge of demand and when there is a certain glut of a certain commodity, right? And you, the demand starts dropping and you're no, no longer competitive. So what's nice with the historical data is it can be used as a base case to start seeing patterns that might be emerging or trending to say, hey, we're about to, we're in a surge environment. So we need to start picking up on orders, right? Or it's dropping because, and the price is adjusting. So we should be cutting back on orders. 
So this is what we've actually developed in the meantime. Previously, the AI was just saying, this product belongs at this place at this time, right? Run, pretty much solving like a, a chess, like you mentioned, a three-dimensional three, three chess, chess board. What we're now doing is a lot of the customers that we work with, especially in commodity markets, right? They have certain competitive advantages like they can make during the rainy season, right? That's one thing that comes up or they can sell when other people can't sell because of how their channels are just so... Uh, this comes to using AI to capture market share, right? So this is where AI can use real-time data in terms of what the market trends are, confirm it with the historical data saying, hey, this is happening again. We're 90% sure it's happening again. It's deja vu. This is the opportunity. This is the this is the play. And just that in time. Right. Right. And one of the things that, you know, people are more and more talking to me about AI and I've read a few books and I'm trying to understand more about it. But one thing I've learned about AI is it, it doesn't always react. It, it, the, the answers it comes up with are sometimes very counterintuitive to what you and I might have come up. Well, maybe you, you're probably living with that AI. Ali, you probably think like it now, <laughs> but the answers it comes up with are not the answers that you and I would come up with with pencil and paper or, you know, doing our calculations. Am I correct to say that? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you think of how we think, we're a little bit more linear in our thinking, right? The way we solve problems is we will solve, We it, anyone who has had an engineering background or mathematics background, they give you this differential equation that can solve, like Navier-Stokes, for example, right? It can solve all the fluid problems in the world. But none of us are going to sit there and build the 18-page proof to say this is this and this and that, Right. So we tend to linearize right. problems saying we set our constraints, like saying, okay, um, we the fluid can only move in this direction, right? Or so, things like that. And so if you start to de decompose a machine learning or AI algorithm, it defeats the purpose, right? Um, and we can learn uh, from industries that have successfully used AI, like advertising and hedge funds that pretty much buy and sell potatoes as well, right? But at the options level, um, and what's nice with them is they have instant feedback, right? Either the, the price goes up or the price goes down, right? With supply chains, it's a little bit har higher because, uh, harder because you have to have the entire cycle complete to see the impact on the P&L sheet. So this is definitely the challenge with AI, right? Which is too many people focus on decomposing it down to the nitty gritty and saying, okay, this is how it's coming up with it, where the opportunity is to isolate and act, right? Which is, okay, we are going to make a change on this production line. And we're going to see if it worked or not. So I think a lot of people are getting stuck with the how and the why and talk me through this or walk me through this. And it's the same challenges that in the 1980s, the hedge fund guys were getting and saying that, well, why is it telling us to buy gold right now? Right. Why is it telling us to uh, right. buy more petrol when <laughs> petrol is not uh, something that's attractive for the rest of them? So it just th that's right. the challenge. Right. Trusting the AI is. Yeah there but it's it's seeing things no, right it's, it might not be it reminds me uh, uh when i was a design engineer <laughs> back in the in the 80s um we we were doing we'd make we'd draw cars right so we had big drawings blueprints right and then when we moved to the cad systems um and they were very expensive and very bulky and there were a lot of them on the mainframes initially uh but they were extremely powerful and one one of the things is uh, none of us truly trusted what the CAD systems would create. So so we would always print things out and then be measuring them and then kind of doing the cutting sections and kind of looking through and saying, 
okay, I guess the CAD system knows what it's doing. And it was funny because, um, of course it did, <laughs> but, um, and I think, but with, 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 well, what I've learned about AI is it comes up with counterintuitive, it, it comes up with answers that humans wouldn't, but they are the correct answers. And again, they are running thousands, if not millions of scenarios on what's the best way to get throughput in your case. I mean, that's what you, it's a, it's a, it, your AI, that's all it does. It doesn't, it doesn't bet or anything, does it? <laughs> we talk about football season if it does betting. <laughs> you know, some people have brought it up as a, as a future trading algorithm, but we, we haven't uh, gotten that. But, but you're right. I mean, there's enough <laughs> historical data that we can see what's going to happen from a systematic perspective, right? Because some things we know is just not going to work, right? And we know from that, that, that digital twin applied, putting an AI layer and predicting what is more likely to happen because if there's a roadblock at the end, there's a roadblock at the end, right? So some things are very predictable and you can bet against it or bet for it, but we're, we're not a, a betting, a betting platform yet. Right. So, but um, like you said, there, there's <laughs> huge opportunities in AI. It's the implementation and trying to figure out what it's saying. Yeah, that's hard. Right. But what I explain to customers is, if you have very, one of the things that people are trying to do is build the perfect AI model, which just does not exist, right? Um, but what we try to convince customers is even if you have just the, say, the, the sales data, the on-time info data, and the on-shelf availability data, right? If there's variance in those three inputs, there's variance across the entire supply chain, right? Because there's bullwhip effect, there's an echo right. effect, and you have a problem. Because if there's variance, there is a problem somewhere. That's the tip. I, I did a, a podcast with Andrew Lynch uh, from Zipline Logistics, and you know I think we said uh, on t- on time and in full, it measures kind of it's the tip of the iceberg, right? There's if that if if you're consistently not able to do that, that's not because of the scorecard; it's because of what happened in your in your supply chain. Correct. So, so, so what I like about what, what what you guys are doing is you can take all this demand. You know, the demand data historic and you can historical data for capacity and say, I can, I can maximize throughput, which is what we're all trying to do. And, and you can with, because it's AI, you can adjust that. It can adjust, I'm assuming instantaneously where us humans would have to really struggle to make those adjustments without it. And the key is around lead times, right? So what I, what I tell people is that the AI can tell you what to do. And if you have enough lead time today to fix it, give it a shot, right? Uh, a classic example of what just happened with the Suez Canal, right? If you had enough lead time and you were a retailer and you figured out, hey, my ship is going to end up going to the Suez Canal and I still have one week to reroute and go across a different channel, um, you basically change the future, Right. And that's what we show to customers that, look, there is another channel to get your product here. And you don't have to wait 90 days, 180 days to have a digital implementation and twin build up. You can do it in the next two to three weeks because you have historical data uh, that you can tie to the real-time data to make sense of what's going on from that perspective. And so that's that's what I've been trying to communicate more often with customers. Everyone wants real-time data, right? Real-time visibility. Coming from operations, I don't want to react real time, right? It would create all sorts of paranoia as a supervisor where I'm looking at the demand and suddenly, you know, uh, you know, cotton prices spiked up. So I'm not going to just be like, oh, I'm not going to buy cotton, right? 
And then by the end of the day, cotton prices are all the way down again. That doesn't mean, okay, let's go buy cotton, right? Um, so I, so what I mean, I'm seeing in operations, right, is the challenge is that they want to understand demand better and they want it from the source, right? They want it from the downstream source. They don't want it from their end customer. They want to look at it from the consumer side. And they're still going to operate with their production schedules and their delivery schedules. But just having that uh, information more upstream to them really helps without a chain of communication, right? That might be distorting it or not communicating it effectively. So there's a lot of opportunity that AI allows you to do, right? It's not the complete model, but it allows you to look at the data and say, okay, I've seen this before, even though this AI is not a complete model. And based off of the data I'm seeing, I'm going to make this decision because I remember seeing this five years ago in a military location, right? right. Where I was a supervisor. And now I'm here at one of the largest CPGs of the world. And it's the same. I'm seeing the same thing. So I'm going to make that decision. Yeah. Well, I think when we talk about the new retail paradigm, you know, we're, we we know things are changing. We know uh, even without COVID, things are changing. We're going to sell, start selling through different channels. And I think what we also know is that we want to do a better job on sustainability. We want to do a better job on profitability. And so, if you know, I'm just thinking out loud for a second. If I was a retailer, it seems to me that it would make sense to say, I'm going to start using something that helps me better, uh, that gets me more throughput, right? That more profitability. And at the same time, I'm going to start aligning maybe my largest, my largest uh, CPGs to do that with me because I don't want to just, I don't want to just fix it locally at the retail location. I need to fix it going all the way back to the beginning of the supply chain. And it seems to me that's the way to move it because as, as the retailer says, the ultimate demand is when the consumer comes in and buys it. Um, the guy who's, you know, the supplier to the supplier, he doesn't have that visibility until you give it to him. And when you're giving it to him, it's, it's old data. So it's interesting though, you could adjust, you could adjust if you had everything in the system, like a throughput system, you could say, yeah, I can make these adjustments on a, a timely basis to your point, not real time. That's not helpful. <laughs> you don't want to, you know, whipsaw your, your uh, supply chain around, but this is the way to do it. Because at some point when you say we're going to start delivering more through e-commerce, well, I make that adjustment in the system. And then also to your point earlier, uh, I don't want to have a whole bunch of stuff on my shelf that doesn't make me money. So let's, <laughs> let's, let's understand what that stuff is and, and be better at uh, ordering. And furthermore, we can actually drive behavior, which is a scary part of AI, right? Where, so we, we have this example where uh, we have a use case where for a certain item, every time they run a 10 to 20% discount, it creates a, like a 5 to 15x surge in terms of sales, right? And if you offer like, you know, a dollar on, on, on savings or, you know, 50 points on the rewards card, it does nothing. Right. So over time, the system pretty much learns how to move product. Right. And it's, it's, I think this is one of the scariest things of AI. Right. Which is you are now collecting enough data from a sales perspective to say what price point works to pretty much create this huge surge on the retail side. And um, this is also the thing that retailers can actually use today. And our system does this more recently, where if you have the marketing campaign data and the holiday data, we can pretty much create a scenario where people are pretty much picking up product because we know they react to a certain price point more often 
than not on a certain day, right? So I think that's what's getting scary with the AI side of things, which is in ad engines, they basically optimize the clickbait and, you know, by the, before you even type something into Google, it's already populating it now. It's, it's just, um, it's insane, right? Um, but you pretty much can do the same at the retail side. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. This is kind of an older story, but I'll tell it just the same because I think it's relevant here is I'm in, I'm in Michigan. Uh, and when I was, there used to be this store called Kresge's and then it became Kmart and Kmart, I think opened up at the same time as like Target and I think Walmart. They all opened like 1962. Um, and Meyer opened up, I think at the same time. And so it was interesting. All these stores popped up. So Kmart, have, they're famous for these blue light specials. I think Kmart is gone now, right? I think yeah, they're officially mine, gone. They merged with Sears. Mine shut down across the street, so <laughs> they're definitely gone. Yeah. But what was interesting is they'd have these blue light specials, right? And so the blue light special, everything was, you know, these products are on sale. Across town, well, at that time, Walmart was only in the South. But Walmart never did sales. They were always everyday low prices. And what's interesting about that is um, Kmart struggled with their um, inventory. They don't know because I sold a ton of umbrellas because I had a blue light special. I'm selling them for a $2, right? They don't know how many umbrellas they sell every single day in March. Conversely, Walmart says it's we know exactly how many we sell. So we can manage our inventory pretty well because we know how many how many umbrellas we sell every March. And at some point, inventory management became a big competitive advantage for Walmart. And that wasn't the only thing that drove Kmart under, but uh, it certainly doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, the more predictive you are, the better it is, right? I mean, Toyota pretty, the way people don't realize that t- the reason why Toyota built products that sell so fast is they were at the ultimate consumer point where they were actually in the early days would have retail uh, and representatives actually show up to your house in Japan and get to know the family. And they were just dedicated. They were sort of like your financial advisor, but for automotives, right? They, they, they would understand like what you would need when you were just out of college, then when you got right. settled down, then when you had kids, and then when you retired, right? So they were co- collecting an enormous amount of consumer data that way and sending those signals back to operations to make it very predictable, right? And in automotive, you commit to a certain amount of cars, right? Which is nice. And then... Everyone's supposed to fulfill those 250,000, say, minibuses, right, for example. And so uh, the more predictable you are, as you mentioned with Walmart, you can do it. But in situations where you're trying to capture market share or so forth and drive more people, you can use the marketing campaign data to create more of a surge. But then the challenge becomes, can your supply chain fulfill it? But if you have a good on-time info and on-shelf data, you can create just the right amount of surge to clear out and flush out the supply chain, which is what one of our... Right. Yeah, and I'm and I'm pretty sure you can do this. One of the challenges in automotive was always new, new option ad- adoption. So when we came out with the the CD player, a certain amount of people bought it the first year, a certain amount of people bought it the second year, and it's certain people bought it third year. And so then when we said, okay, we we can do a DVD player, uh, is it going to be the same adoption? I don't know. Yep. Uh, when you come out with wireless internet. Uh, what percent are going to buy that? And the challenge you say, well, who cares if you sell a few extra? The problem is you're building facilities based on that. So I have to build a production facility 
based on uh, 50,000 units sold a year or 200,000. So when I facilitize, I've, I, I have to sell that many. And yep. if I under, <laughs> I under, if I underestimate how many people are going to buy that new product, I screw myself because I'm not making those new, new profit. Same thing happens if I over facilitate. Worst thing happens when I over facilitate and I say, I'm facilitized to sell 200,000. I get this big factory and I only sold 50,000. Yep. Your retailers have that same problem, Ali. They want to know, I'm going to give shelf space to this new product. How is it going to do? Um, how many should I order? Right. So that's where I would like AI to say, Hey, based on new product introductions in this segment, this is what you should expect. Absolutely. And you, what AI can do today is free up the capacity and the shelf space to even try that, right? One of the things people don't realize is there's a lot of, we talked about sustainability. If the operation becomes more efficient, you free up capacity. That gives you more uh, of it because you're making money and making good profit. Now you have this buffer where you can try new products and, uh, you know, go and do something a little bit more risky, which doesn't jeopardize your overall operations, right? It's like not—it's not like betting the farm on, I don't know, uh, right. Boeing seven eight seven or whatever it is. I'm not singling out uh, right. airlines, but I think what you're also pointing out is we're talking a lot, a lot on CPG and retail for this podcast. But there's a lot of learnings that uh, are in adjacent industries that supply chains and retailers and CPGs should look at, right? Um, automotive is has all sorts of world-class philosophies like lean and theory of constraints. We, we made all the mistakes over there first. Yeah. And then, you know, military and oil field have some of the best logistics and supply chain experience in the world because they have to get products to places that you didn't think you could get products to, like sub-Saharan Africa, um, you know, offshore, off the coast of Dubai. Um, these guys know how to move stuff, right? And where there isn't infrastructure, right? And so a lot of that learnings can now be picked up by the big CPGs and the retailers to say, well, how is the military doing it? How are how did Toyota and you know Theory of Constraints and these guys optimize their operations? And how can we move it into our space where there hasn't been as much of a focus because we've been focused on demand generation, right? Which is, um, this is one of the challenges I'm seeing with a lot of tech companies here in Silicon Valley that are now going from the digital world to the physical world. They know how to create a surge in demand in, you know, VR hardware and uh, AR hardware and, uh, you know, uh, home improvement. Right. Uh, but they their supply chain is all contract manufacturing, right? Uh, besides Apple, of course, right? So the question becomes is we can create demand, but we have no idea how to supply it. So there's these back orders for the next one to two years uh, of products that are not going to be fulfilled because they haven't figured out the supply chain part, right? So what are you going to do? Are you just going to pre-book uh, and wait for it? It allows you to have a little bit more cash on hand, which is great, but they are still figuring out their entire manufacturing and supply chain process. Yep. Yep. So Ali, we've gone all over the place. I'm going to try and summarize this a little bit, and then I want to get your final thoughts on this, and then I want to wrap this bad boy up. So we talk about this this new retail paradigm and VUCA is here to stay. And that's that volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and um, ambiguity that we all have to deal with. That's just part of that. That will always be there. And I think it's, it's increasingly difficult now that we're time. I don't know if omni-channel is an old-fashioned word, but we're going to sell through multiple channels um, on time and in full and shelf availability all is important. And and I think what you said throughout is we don't think everything on the retail, we know not everything on retail shelves is even done profitably. 
So we're doing, we're making a lot of mistakes on that retail level. I shouldn't say mistakes. We're, we've got new information that we can now use to say, not everything on that shelf should even be on that shelf, right? Um, and and that those challenges get pushed to the CPGs. They're they're dealing with this demand. They're dealing with capacity issues of their own. Lead times are changing. And what you're saying, getting to is, we need a tool, and that's what you guys provide, that allows us to do that. That allows us to align uh, capacity and demand, <laughs> demanding capacity and maximize throughput. And it's a system that allows me to do that. I don't have to do it manually because I probably couldn't. <laughs> and and I can do lots of uh, simulations. I can I can check out any different scenario. So when when COVID hit in March, I could do a whole bunch of scenario planning. What's the worst case? What's the best case? I can start to I can start to have real data to direct me on my decision making. I know I missed most of it. <laughs> please, uh, please add your two cents there, Ali. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. And I, you're right. We, we went all over the place. Well, but uh, I think what the key has been is that there's so many industries to learn from and uh, move things over to. And ultimately, if you look at the problem we're solving at the most fundamental level, it's moving water through a pipe, right? So ultimately, if you can simplify it to that uh, sort of analogy, right? You know what the inputs yep. are, you know what the outputs are, you know what the mechanics are getting there and the valves and all that stuff, right? And just starting to build a model that looks similar to that. And I know the ERPs of the world were supposed to do this, right? But they do it, don't do it from a dynamic perspective as well. Um, that's pretty much where retailers need to be thinking, right? It's everything is connected now. And it's not enough to say, we want this, right? You have to be able to separate with the data and you can do it, the VUCA from the non-VUCA, right? Just what is the norm and what is the variance? And by doing that, you know what your base case is. You need to know what you can always provide. You need to adjust your business to make sure from what you can always provide on a non-time info perspective makes you money, right? Keeps the lights on, uh, prevents you from shutting down operations and so forth. And all the VUCA stuff is the variance that you need to uh, prepare for uh, in terms of, okay, there's scenarios that we might run into this. What's the worst case? What's the best case? And if this is the situation, how do we still fulfill the demand and not miss out on an opportunity, right? So I think that's where data can help. Many people uh, think it's all chaos. I don't think it's all chaos. I've seen environments that are uh, far more chaos oriented, which nothing's predictable, right? Like uh, the weather's not predictable. Like how, how the boat's moving is not predictable. It's not predictable which tribe is going to show up and, and stop your operation. Uh, but you can still plan for those scenarios. And I think this is what military and oil field does. They have so many mitigation measures in place that I think retailers should start looking towards as well, right? Because they're going to have to work more effectively with their distributors and their suppliers. And if that requires consolidation to improve the throughput, that might be the strategy, Right until a, a future time where you can offer 46 different types of peanut butter because you have the luxury to do so, right? And you are moving towards right. more of a custom model where you're trying to attract all sorts of customers. So there needs to be an expansion and contraction in terms of your strategy for, for retail. Right. And, you, you know, when you mentioned some people say it's all chaos, you can predict nothing. But one of the, one of the things we do know is there are retailers who are starting to adopt this and they are going to have an advantage. So, it's not, you know, what I say a lot on this podcast is there's haves and have nots. 
Um, there's people who are going to have the tools that allow them to be more profitable, to make better decisions. And there's people who are going to say, throw their hands in the air and say, I can't do it. It doesn't work. And yeah. we're seeing it. And again, we're, we're starting to see if I were to tell you 10, 15 years ago that you'd see a whole bunch of companies in the market, retail market, groceries with fewer SKUs, you'd be like, no, no, no. Everybody's going with more SKUs. They, they want more. They want to provide us with 80 types of peanut butter because 45 wasn't enough. Right? Yeah. No, they're not doing that anymore. And I, it's interesting. I shopped at Target a few times in the last year. Target has a very small um, grocery area. But you know what? It's more or less everything I need. So I'm like, yeah, it's kind of nice. It's small once I get that into that part of the store. So I look and go, yeah, I'm not against a smaller, a smaller market that has everything I want. That's a better deal for me. Anyway, Ali, let's wrap this bad boy up. Tell us a little bit about what's going on over at Throughput AI. And then um, I know Anita also wanted uh, us to mention uh, you guys made a list, I think, of what was it? something a food list what was that list you made yeah so what's nice joe is uh, we're getting more recognized in our uh, fourth year of operation right uh, we we recently made a couple of lists uh, we were selected as a top green provider by food logistics Man- Ma- magazine which is often reserved top for what? food logistics magazine top green providers right they uh, release a list of 100 companies that includes we mentioned lineage logistics and rider and jb hunt and somehow this year throughput was on the list. So it's nice to get noticed for our work. Uh, more from manufacturing insights, we were recognized. This is the top 10 supply chain solution as well as CIO review. So uh, more people are waking up to what we've been doing. Uh, what we have been offering more and been, we've been doing more work in the commodities in the CPG space, right? Because the data is easier to work with. Um, if you're working with glass and plastics and steel and cement, lot less complex than, you know, building a Ferrari. And of course they make to order anyways, right? Those guys. But um, there's a lot of opportunity. What we've been coaching operations to do is be a little bit more data-driven, right? Um, I didn't become data-driven until I had the whole picture, right? That's as a geomark manager, when you can build and see what's going on from point A to point B, that's when you can really start driving value in your supply chains. So we we have some incredible updates. Uh, we're working closely with private equity back groups, right? Uh, family owned businesses that typically tend to be more vertically integrated and they care more about their own money, right? Uh, and so we, we've been helping customers triple inventory turns, right? We've been helping them reduce millions of dollars of working capital. And when you reduce that much money in inventory, that's essentially s- slowing down stuff that is actually selling that moves fast, right? Rebalancing the flow. It creates all sorts of possibilities in terms of buying new equipment, uh, buying more digital solutions, right? Um, we're helping customers use their data to free up money to invest in more digitalization and more CapEx. And this is where we're moving the world towards as well, especially on the retail side. Uh, it all starts uh, on the retail side. That's one of the things that currently we're working more in a pull economy around the world versus push with new products, right? And so using that data right. from the retail side, starting with that, planning group and retail side and working backwards to manufacturing operations where, where we all lived and breathed uh, before throughput is creating that great uh, offering where you have an analytics tool, but you're actually acting on it, right? You're actually influencing the material flow and the supply chain flow. And it's creating a huge sustainability angle as well, right? Which is when you're not making plastic bottles that aren't going to sell, 
you're basically reducing the carbon footprint of plastic, right? Um, if you are running, the, making the same amount of output, but using AI to figure out which products need to be at which machine at what time or which shelves should be storing what product at what time in distribution retail, you're reducing emissions, right? Because trucks are not moving stuff. You're not running machines or engines. And so there's a huge play for AI on the sustainability side that we're working more towards with the ESG uh, centric companies. So a lot going on in throughput, always a joy to sit down with you and give you the updates of the world that we see. Well, you know, you, you, one of the themes you keep bringing up is this idea of being more data driven. And I think all of us would like to be more data driven. And I can say this when I still worked in a production environment that we all want to be data driven. It's just the, the problem is getting good data and, and you have all this data in different systems, different silos and you know, one group believes that they want to do more of this. Another group believes they want to do more of something else. And I think what's interesting, you know, to, to distill it down to very simple terms, what you guys are doing is you're the black box. You, you take all the inputs and then you say, here's your, here's your data. This is what to do. Here's, here's the direction. And I'm sure it gives you some um, latitude within that, but that's what we want. I, yeah. I don't want to have to go through and do my own throughput calculations. Um, I want, I want something, especially something AI powered to do it for me. Absolutely. And what we also encourage customers to think about is you can only prepare for 99.9% .9 of operations, right? Uh, and in order to make those judgment calls, that's like over optimistic. <laughs> yeah. And as you know, as an entrepreneur, I've been on both sides where I've been a, I'm an entrepreneur now, so overly optimistic about everything, right? And I've been on the oil field side, which is double isolation and everything. Don't risk it. If it's not on the schedule, don't do it, right? And so um, what right. I've learned on both sides of the spectrum is you can use 99% of the data pretty much reflects what you should be able to do and you should execute to that. Um, you can't build businesses on you know, black swan events, right? Like Bitcoin surging and so forth. Yes, you can get rich overnight, but that's the equivalent of striking oil, right? And um, right. there's a more systematic way to do it with data, connect it and prepare. Right? It's all about pre preparation and having options when you're ex in the execution environment to make smarter decisions, right? And I think we can all be data-driven uh, in even areas where we're not uh, collecting data uh, at a high frequency where, you know, we don't have IOT devices on everything because we're always capturing sales data. Every business today is tracking what they're selling, right? And they're tracking what the inputs are in terms of what are they ordering. And that's a great starting point before you get into all the nitty gritties around quality, on-time info, all the things that have VUCA associated with it. Right, right, right. All right, Ali, what I'll do is I will... Um, I will add a few links. I'll add a link to Throughput AI uh, in the show notes, and I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. And maybe I'll even get uh, some of those lists that you made and put those in the show notes. And uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you, they can reach out to you that way. Thank you, Joe. And if you want to reach out to me personally, uh, Ali at Throughput.ai is how to find me. All right. Excellent. Well, Ali, thank you so much. This is such a big topic, and I appreciate you trying to. Uh, uh, shed some light on some of these challenges. And again, I think uh, there is a new retail paradigm. And I think what's interesting is you guys have a tool that can help people uh, be successful in that new retail paradigm. Get a little more data, as you would say. So thank you very much, Ali. Thank you, Joe. And uh, have a and great day. And thank all of you.
Yeah, thank you. And thank all of you for listening. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.